Hey everyone, and welcome back to Big Mad True Crime, where we get big mad over true crime. I'm your host, Heather Ashley, and today we get part three of the murder of Egypt Covington. The more we investigate this, the more information comes to light, and the more parties who are willing to come forward and talk to us about what they know and fill in some of the holes we have. So, episode plans change a little bit. We'll obviously still go over Egypt's autopsy this week, but first, we're going to dive a little deeper into the movements of both Kenny and Curtis before Egypt was found. Small talk sucks, so let's dive in. In last week's episode, we talked about how Curtis, Egypt's boyfriend, went out to dinner with his daughter right before he found Egypt, but we couldn't account for about an hour of his time based on his interview. That's not to say the hour doesn't have a perfectly good explanation, it's just to say we couldn't definitively say exactly what that was. That's where Curtis's daughter's mother comes in. She was kind enough to reach out to me and more than willing to talk with me about the evening of the 23rd prior to him finding Egypt dead in her home. I'd first like to point out that no one has bothered to talk to either of them. Neither PI on this case nor any police officers investigating the case have ever reached out to either Curtis's daughter or her mother. His daughter, who had just graduated high school, had spent actual Father's Day with her mother, stepfather, and her siblings, which is why her and Curtis had their makeup Father's Day on the 23rd after he got off work. Curtis's daughter's mom, I don't want to call her his baby mama because frankly she's awesome and it sounds like an insult to call her that, so his daughter's mom said that generally whenever Curtis would get off work to come pick up their daughter, he wouldn't get there until around 5pm and to boot, his daughter was never ready by the time he picked her up. She was a teenager after all. She gave me their old address to map his travels from and a better timeline to fill in the blanks from Curtis's interview, so let's break this down. Curtis gets off work and gets to his daughter's house around 5 p.m. Let's say they leave around 5.30. It takes 18 minutes to drive to his apartment to change, putting him there around 5.58. Let's allow 10 minutes for changing and we're at 6.08. They drive to the Mexican restaurant, which takes 19 minutes, so they get there around 6.27. He says they eat for 15 minutes. Counting those 15 minutes, that would put him leaving the restaurant at roughly 6.42 p.m. Then he drops her back off at her house, which is a 17-minute drive, so he drops her off around 6.59. His daughter did tell her mother that he was checking his phone the entire time they were there. After Curtis drops off his daughter, he says he heads straight to Egypt's house, which is 20 minutes away, putting him there at 7.19. He called 911 at 7.16 p.m., so now we only have a three-minute discrepancy, and it's probably just his daughter being ready in less than 30 minutes, him taking less than 10 minutes to change, or just catching a bunch of green lights. Thanks to Curtis's daughter's mother reaching out and being willing to talk about the day Egypt was found, we have now filled in all existing holes in Curtis's timeline for that night. I could not be more grateful for people like her. But now on to Kenny. I was able to talk to him and get the GPS file of his movements throughout the day of Egypt's murder, so let's go through that with a fine tooth comb. 
Kenny got home from work on the 22nd at 5.28 p.m. and got ready to go out boating. He left his house 20 minutes later and stayed on the boat with his friend Jeremy until a storm started coming in. He got back home at 7.36, then got ready to go out and left his house again at 7.52. Kenny then drove for five minutes to the Bayou Grill where he had a few beers alone, then went down the street to Egan's Pub, also alone. All of this happened between 7.57 and 8.50 p.m. After Egan's Pub, he walked to Lakeview Tavern and got there at 9.11 p.m. At this point in Egypt's night, she was finishing up her post-yoga conversation with her friend and driving home. Remember from last week's episode, she would have gotten back to her house around 9.20 p.m. Regardless of her not being home within the time frame of Kenny's 20-minute walk and the fact that his entire day is mapped out from location to location, it's something I wanted to look into because walking from Egan's Pub to Lakeview Tavern should only take about three minutes, but for him it took 20. His travel was definitely on foot, he had been drinking and bar hopping, and I can see where a short walk could turn into a longer one, but I still need to do my job. So, I mapped out how long it would take to walk on foot to get to Egypt's house from Egan's Pub and then back to Lakeview Tavern, and it would have taken 63 minutes. If he ran full speed there and back at an average rate of 12 minutes per mile, he could have gotten there and back without stopping in roughly 36 minutes. It just doesn't work. It was just a very slow and drawn out walk from one bar to another. Kenny was at Lakeview Tavern from 9-11 to 10.05 p.m. where he met back up with his friend Jeremy and also happened to run into a friend of Jeremy's named Mike. Once he left Lakeview Tavern, he drove home to his house and got there at 10.21. If Egypt was shot at 9.56 p.m., which is a possibility but still a question, Kenny would have still been at Lakeview Tavern when she was killed. Kenny was caught on security footage at all three places he visited that night at the times he reported he was there. According to Kenny, he was caught on security footage at all three places he visited that night at the times he reported he was there. When talking to Kenny, he told me that his sister did not live with him at the time of Egypt's murder, but did move in later and the two were living together when he was officially named a person of interest. So there's a clarification there and a voluntary one, knowing it wouldn't make him look less innocent. He also told me that his collarbone surgery was after Egypt was killed, so that injury wouldn't have been a hindrance to him if he was the killer, and yet still, he offered me that information again, knowing it wouldn't make him look less innocent. Once Kenny got home, he said he reheated some crockpot chicken fajitas and made a burrito, then sat down to watch Fresh Off the Boat from one of his streaming services. He didn't have a TV at his house at the time, so he watched the show on his phone. After a few episodes, he got ready for bed, watched a little porn, and went to sleep. Kenny gave his phone to police so that they could track his movements and see what he did once he got home, and according to him, he's never gotten that phone back. And I did ask, and according to Kenny, he only had one phone at the time. Now that we've talked about his movements, let's talk about that gun Kenny owned that was the same caliber of shell casing that was found underneath Egypt's body. It turns out that he had actually sold that gun to a friend named Chris a year prior on March 26 of 2016. He gave the sales receipt to the police the day after Egypt was found. Kenny told Chris that police were probably going to be talking to him about it because he'd given them the sales receipt, so Chris took it upon himself to take the gun out of his safe where it had been for the last year and turn it over to the police so they could test it. I talked to Kenny's friend Chris to confirm this story. 
The VBPD took the gun into evidence and gave it to Michigan State Police to be run for ballistics, and 17 months later, in December of 2018, the gun had still yet to be returned to Chris, and without explanation. So he sent an email to a sergeant asking about the status and location of the gun, wondering when he could get it back. In January of 2019, Chris sent another email asking about the status and location of the gun. According to Chris, within a couple weeks of his last email, he was contacted by someone at VVPD telling him that his property was ready to be picked up. So he did, and that's the end of that story. Certainly, had it been a match, it would not have been given back to him, and an arrest would have been made, right? You know, with the gun Kenny hadn't owned in over a year prior to the murder. If the police believed Kenny had used that gun, what would that scenario look like? He sold it a year prior, so did they think he went into Chris's house, unlocked his safe, stole the gun, murdered Egypt sometime during a night that is highly documented, then when Chris wasn't looking, somehow managed to return the gun back to the locked safe without being detected? It just doesn't make sense. But that's enough about Curtis and Kenny. Let's move on to the autopsy report that I promised we would go over in this episode. Let's start from the beginning. One of the first things they mentioned in her autopsy report was her gunshot wound, and we all know she was shot in the head, but what you didn't know was that it wasn't from close range. In a close-range gunshot wound, you're going to notice burn marks and stippling from the combustion, but looking at an up-close of Egypt's gunshot wound, they're right, there's none of that. I showed the pictures of her gunshot wound to a forensic investigator and asked what their opinion was. How far away do you think the shooter was based on this gunshot wound? Their answer? Gunshot wounds are really tricky sometimes when determining distance, but with a lack of burn marks, I'd say at least 12 feet away, but it's hard to tell. We know that it wasn't close range based on the autopsy and a second opinion suggested possibly being 12 feet away. In most of the murders I've researched, especially when someone was tied up, their gunshot wounds are from close range, oftentimes referred to as execution style, but that's not the case with Egypt. I've shot many handguns in my day. I live in Virginia. Guns are absurdly normal around here. I can try to hit a target from 12 feet away, but 9 times out of 10, it's not going to happen. My husband was a firearms instructor certified through the Department of Criminal Justice Services for the police department, and when I consulted him about the likelihood of shooting a target accurately at 12 feet away, he said you'd have to be very familiar with the weapon system you're using, you'd have to be practicing with that particular weapon on a regular basis, and not be under any amount of stress that would hinder your fine motor skills, which are the first senses to go when in a stressful situation. And I'd say being in a house with a gun and a woman tied up would qualify as a stressful situation regardless of why you're there and whether it's premeditated or not. Knowing this, we have to ask, did this person pull the trigger that far away on purpose or were they waving the gun around carelessly and accidentally pulled the trigger? Did this person or people, you heard me correctly, go to her house with the intent to shoot her or was there a different intent, obviously a nefarious one, but different nonetheless? If they had tied her up, why would they risk firing from so far away and possibly missing, meaning they'd have to fire again and draw more attention to the house and the scene? Was it an accident or was it someone who was very confident in their aim? The autopsy report continues into a description of Egypt's body when they did the exam, which was done on June 25th. Mind you, she was found the evening of the 23rd. 
Her body had begun to slightly decompose, which is the reason for the smell of decomposition noted in the report from last week. They list Egypt's height as 5'11", and her weight as 120 pounds. I'm not sure why they listed her weight that low, but her brother said she was roughly 160 to 170 pounds, and I've seen her autopsy photos. She was most definitely not 120 pounds at that height. The 160 to 170 range looks much more accurate. By the time of her exam, her body was fully out of rigor mortis. Rigor mortis starts one to two hours after death, peaks around 12 hours, is steady in that state for another 10 to 12 hours, depending on your source, and will gradually dissipate within the next 12 hours. So we're considering three sets of 12-hour time periods, one period when it's beginning, one period when it's in full effect, and one when it's dissipating. According to an article written by S. Corey in the Journal of Forensic Sciences and Criminal Investigation, rigor mortis first affects the small muscles in the eyelids, then the jaw and neck muscles, followed by the muscles in your trunk, upper extremities, and lower extremities, basically head, shoulders, knees, and toes. The last parts of the body to be affected are the fingers and the toes, and the disappearance of rigor mortis goes in the same order it started in. Since this exam was done on the 25th, we have to go back to her crime scene photos to get a better idea of her state of rigor mortis when she was found to try and get a time frame for her time of death, which is arguably one of the hardest things to do. At the peak of rigor mortis, your body will completely hold its shape in the position it was in one to two hours after death. Looking through Egypt's crime scene photos, we get a little insight into her state of rigor mortis when the police release her arms from the Christmas lights. If she was within peak rigor mortis, her arms would have stayed in the position they were in, regardless of them removing the bindings or not. When she was untied, it looks like it was done carefully and her arms remained behind her back, but then they bagged her hands. When they did this, her arms fell to her sides. After this, they rolled Egypt over onto her right side to inspect the crime scene beneath her, and when they did this, her arms fell to her sides again, one arm going completely straight. Judging by this, it looks like her arms were no longer in full rigor. While her arms fell to her sides, her hands stayed tightly clasped, her fingers still positioned to hold tightly to that piece of hair that's no longer between her left thumb and pointer finger. We can only hope it was taken into evidence. Knowing that the fingers and toes are the last to reach full rigor mortis and the last to come out of full rigor mortis, we can take the first 12-hour period of rigor mortis setting in and cross it out. She had been dead for at least 12 hours without a question. Taking into account that some of her muscles had released, like the muscles in her arms, we're now able to cross out the second 10 to 12 hour period where your body remains in full rigor. That's 22 to 24 hours. The photos we have from the crime scene are from a medical examiner's investigator who was there between 1 a.m. and 1.32 a.m. on the 24th. If we rewind 22 to 24 hours, that puts Egypt's death sometime before 3 a.m. on the 23rd, the day she was found. We know she was in the stage of coming out of rigor when she was moved, but her hands had yet to release, so it hadn't completed yet. She was still coming out of the third period of rigor mortis when those pictures were taken by the Emmys investigator between 1 and 1.32 a.m. Based on our best guess, considering her movements on the 22nd and the crime scene photos along with the autopsy report, Egypt was likely killed sometime after 9.20 p.m. on the 22nd and before 3 a.m. on the 23rd. 
The clothes she was wearing when she was found were yoga shorts and a tank top. She was still wearing a bra and the necklace she had worn to work earlier. So it's more than likely that she hadn't changed out of her clothes and gotten ready for bed at the time she was killed. The necklace and the belly button ring she was wearing at the time of her death were removed from her body at the scene and left there. I talked to Tina, Egypt's mom, who had allowed some of Egypt's best friends to take pieces of her jewelry as keepsakes, and we were able to retrieve the necklace from the friend who chose that particular one. She had no idea it had been on Egypt's body when she was killed and subsequently found. And even more shocking, it was clean, aside from some of Egypt's hair when she got it. Tina had never cleaned it. We know a text came from her phone at 10.03 p.m., and we know a Snapchat came from her account at 11.03 p.m., but as of yet, we have no definitive proof that those came from Egypt herself or whether it was someone else using her phone. Her autopsy report continues and lists the injuries to her body, obviously the gunshot wound, and additionally a small half-inch by quarter-inch abrasion on her left forearm. Seeing that these were the only injuries listed, I went through every single autopsy photo provided, zoomed in as far as I could, and if I had a magnifying glass, I'd have used that too. So let's start out with the injury listed on her forearm. It's definitely a fresh wound. When you think of the term abrasion, you generally think of a cut or a scrape, but this is more like a chunk was taken out of her arm, and frankly, it's almost perfectly shaped like a fingernail. If that is in fact what happened, someone was walking around with Egypt's DNA underneath their fingernail. Both of Egypt's knees looked bruised, but I understand lighting and decomposition can play a role into this appearance, but it would make sense if she was kneeling when she was bound and eventually killed in that same position. This would match up with the fact that the trajectory went from the middle right of her head to the top left of her head, and her blood drained down the top of her head through her hair and not down her back. Her head, like we talked about previously, was facing downward. This would also indicate that the person who shot her pointed the gun downwards, meaning she wasn't standing up when she was shot, unless her killer is a giant. If we think about that, we can now start to think about the position of the rest of her body. If she was sitting with her legs in front of her when she was killed, her blood would have run through her hair and onto her legs, but there was no blood on her legs. If she was sitting on her ankles with her knees in front of her with her head tilted downward, the blood would run down her hair and onto her knees, but alas, there was no blood on her knees either, which leaves one more option. that Egypt was on her knees in the kneeling position, but otherwise upright. This is the only scenario that makes any sense as to why when she was shot, her blood rushed through her hair and onto the floor and not onto her legs or knees. But that leads us to yet another revelation. Her wound would have been instantly fatal, meaning she would have collapsed, but her blood ran down through her hair, soaking it and onto the carpet. It was a lot of blood. You can't hold yourself upright when you're dead. And this wasn't a close range gunshot wound. So now we have to ask, how did she stay upright long enough for the blood to run down through her hair and onto the carpet the way that it did? Was there more than one person in Egypt's house when she was killed? Was there someone holding her up while someone else shot the gun? 
And with the shooter now being so much further back than you would initially assume, the shell casing would have the opportunity to ricochet off of a refrigerator or something else towards the front of the house and land where it did prior to her finally being laid down, but we'll get more into that in the next episode. I continued going through her autopsy photos and noticed another chunk of skin taken out of her right butt cheek, maybe an inch and a half below where her pants were pulled up. It also looked fresh and red like the forearm abrasion. In order to have gotten there, someone would have had to have grabbed her yoga shorts and at least somewhat pulled at them. A rape kit and fingernail clippings were taken into evidence. Whether they were ever tested is up in the air. On the opposite side of her entrance wound, on Egypt's left temple, there was a scratch. It's hard to tell what it's from, but it broke the skin in an irregular way, almost like she was hit with something that had a square edge. I also noticed some pink fiber-looking things in her hair, almost like the inside of a sweatshirt, those little balls that the fabric clumps into, and I recognized it. In photos provided by the cleanup crew, who tried to use a Swiffer to get up her blood, they had taken a picture of some pink fibers on a random wall. It's not a great picture, I can't even tell you which wall it came from, but they look really similar. If they're the same, why is whatever is on the wall also in Egypt's hair? Moving on to her toxicology report, she had a few things in her system. There was Adderall present, which she was prescribed. She had something in her system that I won't even try to pronounce, but it's a substance that was banned in the U.S. in 2013 due to high increased risk of stroke in younger women. It was used in cough suppressants, but also used as an appetite suppressant, and many have reported she was trying to lose weight at the time of her murder. This would indicate that she knew someone who could get their hands on this. She also had THC in her system. THC, for those of you who don't know, is just weed. Nothing fancy, but again, she would have had to know someone or some ones who could get her both. When we put everything we learned in this episode together and we add a few new aspects of her crime, we can deduce that there was some kind of struggle prior to her being shot. The shooting was not close range, which is a risk for the shooter. She knew someone who could get her a substance banned in the U.S. 14 years prior, and it's possible that more than one person was in Egypt's house besides her when she was murdered. The more people involved in a murder, the more likely one of them is going to talk, whether they're telling their friends or getting drunk and crying about it. And Van Buren is a small, small town. And let me assure you, people are talking. But we'll have to save that for next week. For all photos, diagrams, and maps pertaining to this case, check out Egypt's highlight at the top of my Instagram profile at the Heather Ashley, and join me there at 9 p.m. Eastern tonight, where me, you, and Egypt's brother and future sister-in-law will be talking about this case and answering any questions you have. If you like your podcast ad-free, head over to our Patreon at patreon.com/bigmadtruecrime, or for just one whole dollar a month, your episodes are totally ad-free. If you need more episodes in your life, for just five dollars a month you get a bonus episode on the first monday of every month all your episodes are ad free and you'll also receive a forever discount code for all big mad true crime merch and of course anytime you sign up you get instant access to all previous bonus episodes i'll be bringing you part four of egypt's case a week from today and i cannot wait but until then we out mm -hmm.